Area 10 Faith Community meets in the historic Bird Theater in Carytown in Richmond, Virginia. We worship together at 10 a.m. on Sunday mornings, both in person and online at youtube.com slash area10church. Kid-friendly programming is also available at the same time just down the street at 2810 at Community Gathering Place. We hope to see you at the Bird Theater soon. Now, on to this week's message. All right, I've got a heavy topic to talk about today. Uh, I want to talk about death. But before we talk about that, I want you to know something up front. Uh, I have a lot of joy, and, and I have a, a, a deep sense of joy, even as we approach a topic like death. Uh, and the joy is not because um, I have my head in the sand, or I don't understand, or I'm ignorant of what the world has been like for the last couple of years. I know there's a lot of uh, frustration and pain and death and sorrow, and I know people have experienced a lot of loss over the last few years. I know there's economic hardship right now that I'm feeling, a lot of people are feeling. There's a lot of pressure and, and tension there. Um, so I, it, even though it, all those things are true, I, I still feel a sense of joy. I, I still feel like, man, um, God has given me something. And I actually believe that followers of Jesus should have joy, not because we have our head in the sand, but because we believe in a God who uh, rescues us, who can actually bring real peace, who understands the pain and is with us in it. And we believe in that kind of God. We, we, have, um, we have to all on this earth go through some hard stuff. But if you're a follower of Jesus, uh, you believe there's purpose. We are uh, like Loki in the Marvel comic universe. We are burdened with glorious purpose. Uh, I, I, I feel that. I, I feel like, okay, there's a, there, um, I don't like the way everything goes in life, but I have rails that I'm on. I have a direction that I'm going because of what God has taught. And, um, and I have somewhere to go when it goes off track. And so I, I, I just say all that to say I have joy, and because there will be some heavy things we're going to get into here, um, and I think uh, joy is good, and, and you can even respond to death from a place of joy, which seems odd. And I want to show us, I want to show you uh, this in in the life of Jesus. We have been following Jesus around for a couple months now as he walks around the Sea of Galilee early as recorded for us by the physician and then historian writer Luke, who writes this down for us. We are following Jesus around as he walks around the sea, and we have seen Jesus heal people and cast demons out of people and teach people, and uh, a great crowd starts to follow him because this is the most incredible thing they've seen in their lives. It's, it's profound. And, and so last week we looked at uh, him healing a centurion's servant uh, from a distance and, and up near Capernaum, which is kind of home base for him on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. And uh, this week I, wanted, I want you just to see as he walks further around to the southwest uh, and, and uh, interaction he has there where he, he comes face to face with death. It's recorded in Luke chapter 7. We're going to pick it up in verse 11. Let me read it to you. Soon afterwards he went to a town called Nain and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. Let me stop there for a second. Nain's 25 miles or so southwest of Capernaum, so it's a long walk. He's going down there, and a great crowd is going with him. Picture the mood of the crowd if you were there with him. This is the traveling circus. I mean, you have Jesus' closest disciples who are like his hype men, and they're like, yeah, Jesus, oh no, he didn't. You know, they're doing this whole thing, going around like it's all exciting. And then you've got a crowd who's like, 
this guy's incredible. He healed my, my daughter. He, 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 handled, like he, he cast the demons out. He did all of these things. Oh, man, when he teaches, it's so profound, and it just touches me. And like a, so these people, this is the most incredible thing, this rural group of farmers around the lake and fishermen and, and things like that. This is the most incredible thing they have ever seen. And so you have a very hyped, uh, in a good mood, very excited crowd following around this kind of rock star. And there's, you can imagine thousands of people that are like, whoa, this is incredible. And they go around to this town where they meet a very different kind of crowd. Verse 12, as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out. The only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. All right, this is a crowd in a very different mood. So two crowds come together. This, this group is very different because uh, a man has died, and what do we know? Well, the, the widow is there, that, that she, um, there's a, a woman whose husband had died, and now her son has died. And we're, we're given those, those little details. And that's actually a big thing in that culture. For a woman uh, whose husband has died, she has no way to care for herself, uh, financially and otherwise. And so uh, she, she's going to be in this very hard situation. If she's a widow and her husband's died, she's going to go to her son and say, can you care for me? And the son's responsibility was to care for her. Well, now that son has died and it is her only son. So she's grieving, in pain, sad, mourning the loss of, she lost the husband and now she's lost her only son. And this is bad for her on many levels because of, of the way things were for women in that culture. And so you've got her upset, and they're, they're carrying this body of the son that has died, and then you have a whole crowd there, and you would have probably had some people who are like professional mourners, and their job is to be there to cry and to sort of weep and wail as the, as the crowd moves along. And you have uh, some interesting comparison contrasts of the two groups that are coming together. Uh, two very different crowds, right? You've got a crowd in a really good mood with Jesus and a crowd in a not-so-good mood with, uh, with the mourning of the loss of this guy. Those are d- different crowds. You have the meeting of two only begotten sons. So you've got the, 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 the son who's now dead is the only child, right? And Jesus coming as the only child of his heavenly father. So you've got these two only child, only begotten sons uh, coming, coming together. You have two, um, two people who are suffering coming together. So the woman is suffering, obviously, uh, losing a child, and the, the pain that goes with that, the, the just the sheer waves of grief that are washing over her as she loses a child. So she's suffering. And then you have Jesus coming along, and although the crowd with him is very hype, uh, Jesus is often referred to as a man of sorrows, and he is well acquainted with grief. Uh, Isaiah predicted this about Jesus and says in Isaiah 53.3, it says this, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. 700 years before Jesus walks the earth, Isaiah writes this about him and says, this is what it's going to be like. He's going to be full of sorrow and, and pain. And yet, I, I do think he has joy. If, if you had met Jesus, you would not have experienced him as just a sad guy. You probably would have experienced him as someone who had a, a sense of joy in spite of the pain, in spite of the circumstances. But this widow is suffering, and Jesus is going to suffer a whole lot too. Um, has suffered, um, and he's about to uh, suffer and and. And it's going to walk through a lot of pain himself. And so he empathizes with her. 
he changes his mood to match the scene. So you've got these two suffering people meeting, and then you also have uh, two enemies that are meeting. Jesus gives life. He's the bringer of life. He's the author of life, the creator of life. Uh, That is Jesus. He represents life, and he is meeting death the opposite of that. Uh, These two forces are coming together. Jesus meeting death as this final enemy. In fact, Paul writes about it this way, 1 Corinthians 15. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death is the boss at the end of the level. Death is the final enemy that we, we have to come across. And Jesus meets that, the author of life coming face to face with death. So what does he do? Verse 13, and when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. All right, notice something here. He has compassion on her. The word in Greek for compassion is related to the Greek word, which is splagna, which refers to our guts. And so the idea of compassion is that we feel it in our gut. This is a deep uh, thing like you're, you've just been kicked in the gut by this experience. We, we, we know what that feels like. We, when, you, when you are moved, when, you are, uh, when something hurts deep, it doesn't just hurt you in your head. There's something sort of south of your, of your, of your brain that you feel this deep loss and pain. And, and Jesus has compassion. He feels that with her. Uh, maybe a good definition is, compassion is your pain in my heart. That's what he's feeling, her pain in his heart. He takes on her pain. And he will switch from this party mood that his followers are in, and he's going to move into this place uh, very quickly of grieving with her and, and meeting her in, in her pain. Um, and he says to her a really odd thing. He says, do not weep. Does that strike you as a little insensitive? It does to me. Like, I... Literally, this is the time to weep. This is it. There's professional weepers there. This is what we do when we lose someone. And so to walk up to her and say, do not weep, sounds to our modern ears just really odd. I mean, does does it ever work to tell someone do not be sad when they're sad? It does not. I'll I'll just let you know. It doesn't work. This is what he does. It seems really odd, but he, but he does move to a place of compassion, and, and he's going to do something for her that I think maybe justifies him saying, don't weep. So he moves towards her in compassion, verse 14. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. They're carrying this like coffin thing. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. Now this is awkward in a way that we don't understand. If you see someone carrying a casket, and in this case an open sort of casket, and they're carrying it along, and he goes up and he touches it, everybody would have kind of freaked out in that moment when he does that because he's a very religious person, right? This rabbi kind of teacher guy. So everyone knows he's real holy and religious. And one thing you don't do in Jewish culture of that day is anything with dead bodies. You don't get near that. You're not going to touch that. That's unclean in so many ways. And so there's a lot of sort of anxiety around this religious teacher touching this, this coffin thing that's holding this dead body. So he goes up and does that, and people are going to sort of uh, freak out about that. And, and they're probably like, everyone stops, and they're like, what does he think he's doing? And he gets there, and he says, you know, young man, I say to you, arise. Verse 15, 
And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. That's a lot. There's something going on there, right? Dead man sits up and speaks up. Luke does not record for us what the guy said, but I would have loved to have known what those words were. I sort of picture him like Kramer in Seinfeld, getting up and being like, whoa, you know, like, or like, guys, I just had the most incredible dream. Like, you would not, y'all, there was a light, there was this tunnel, there was a light, I went towards it, and now I'm here again, I don't know, you know, like, it, it, it's wild. But he sits up, he speaks up, and Jesus sort of says, okay, here's, here's your mother, and kind of, like, hands him back. Um, it's wild. So there's a crowd, the party crowd and the sad crowd. They're all coming together in this moment. How would they react? Verse 16, fear seized them all. And they glorified God saying, a great prophet has risen among us. And God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Their first reaction to seeing this is not joy, and it's not what I think our reaction would be, which is skepticism. Their first reaction is not, I mean, was he really dead? Obviously not. We all know science. We know better than this. That guy wasn't really dead. He was just sleeping. No, their first reaction is to be afraid. They're like, what kind of power is this? Who does this? Because... You raise somebody from the dead, that's a, a, a mic drop moment, right? I mean, he's healed people from a distance and in person. He's cast, you know, he, he got Peter's mother-in-law to be not sick. He handled that. He, he made the wind and the waves obey him. That's a big deal. Cast some demons out in the synagogue. He's done some stuff. But this is big. This guy's dead, and then he's not dead. And Jesus does that. And their reaction is to be afraid. Fear actually makes sense, if you think about it, in this situation. Because fear is uh, a natural response to when you see that kind of otherworldly power on display. C.S. Lewis says that when his wife died, people told him to not be afraid because, um, you know, this was God's will and we shouldn't be afraid of God's will. And his response was, have those people never been to the dentist there's power there, and it's normal and okay that you're afraid. When God works in his power, fear, a healthy kind of fear, is one result. So people were afraid, and they came to basically two conclusions. Number one, they said, a great prophet is among us. So to get the historical background on that statement, this happens, this town, Nain, is near a town called Shunem. And Shunem is mentioned in the Old Testament. There was a widow woman from Shunem whose son had died. And Elisha, this is in 2 Kings chapter 4, Elisha the prophet, the great prophet, was in that region, and he raised that woman's son back to life. Now, he didn't, like, touch the casket and say, arise. What Elisha did was lay on top of his son and kind of blow into his mouth. It's weird. You can look it up. And he does this three, uh, he, does, he does that twice does it two times, and this guy comes back from the dead. 
That's crazy, and Elisha is a, a highly revered and respected prophet in their history. So they're like, so even in that region, they're like, we've seen this before. I mean, it was like 900 years ago, but there was a thing. This guy, this widow's son was raised from dead, and Elisha wasn't even the first person to do that. His, his mentor guy, Elijah, was before him, and in 1 Kings 17, you read, Elijah, same area, widow's son died. He lays on this person and brings it back to life. He lays on him three times. Elisha did it twice, which made the people in the region conclude that this guy, Elisha, has even more power than Elijah because it only took him twice of laying out to heal. So there's this whole background. And so the people who live in that area with a long memory and a long history and, and all that, they're looking at what Jesus is doing and they're going, oh, it's like that again, is it? This is a prophet. This is a great prophet. He doesn't have to lay on the guy. He just touches the casket and tells him to get up. And it gets up. So some people come to that conclusion, this is a great prophet. And then other people say, and I would say rightly, they conclude, man, God is here. God has come to visit us. That's the only way to explain what we, what we see here, the power that we're seeing here. So what do we get from this? I, I think I'm going to give you really like two ideas, uh, two takeaways from this. And then I want to ask you sort of a, as a third thing, I want to ask you one question. So number one is this, as disciples of Jesus, we are called to identify with those in pain. Jesus responds very quickly. It's a party scene, and then it gets very sad very quickly, and he responds quickly and moves into the pain and the suffering, and he he has this gut thing, and the compassion he feels, and he moves towards her. Um, And I wonder if we would do the same thing in that situation, if we would be quick to move with compassion. I actually think we live in a very cynical world, and some of that cynicism hinders our ability to feel compassion, especially, maybe it's compassion fatigue, that's a real thing, but we just keep hearing about how bad things are, and if you heard about a war starting somewhere in the world today, you'd be like, another war, okay, you hear about someone going through a divorce, another divorce, okay, you hear about someone talking about their trauma, you'd be like, more trauma, we all have trauma, okay, like, there's a desensitization that we feel about pain. Um, and some of that maybe it comes from um, hearing the, the, the media sort of day in and day out give us bad news. You know, it used to be said of newspapers, if it bleeds, it leads. So if there's a, a murder or a car crash or something, this is the leading story. We're going to lead with bad news. And I don't know if social media works exactly that way. It's not if it bleeds, it leads, but maybe it's like if it's snarky and negative, we must say it. And, and so we start thinking that everything is awful and bad, but that's actually not true. Like objectively, um, one guy that's really gotten into this, if you ever read his stuff, Steven Pinker, uh, he's got a book called Enlightenment Now, and he rolls through about 75 different graphs about met- of metrics in the world and points out that by almost any measure, things are much better than they were 50 or 100 years ago or whatever. Like, and he'll point to global poverty and all of these things like, no, everything is not getting worse. Now, he's you know, n- not a religious person, so he's kind of getting the secular humanist um, reason like, oh, you know, the enlightenment where th- things are getting better. But I, I think there is something to notice there. It, it, in spite of what, of what you heard, everything is not awful and everything is not getting worse. And the sense that everything is awful and getting worse maybe dulls our sense of compassion for those who are truly hurting. God designed us to 
have that gut kick when we see people in pain. God designed us to feel what they're feeling. And it's not just, I see you crying and I can tell you're sad. Literally, we have mirror neurons in our brain that they've discovered. And when you cry, the thing in my brain that, that is like, oh, it cries. There's crying going on. It kind of fires that off in my head too. Now, some people, you will literally cry with other people when they're crying because it triggers and it just goes, right? Some people, not, not so much. But that thing still fires off in you. We, we have the ability to mirror the emotions that are around us. And God designed us that way, to grow together, to be dependent and interdependent on one another. When, when someone is sad or in pain, it's, you're designed to feel it in you. And so the Jesus people, I think, first and foremost, need to be the people who sit with others in their pain. If someone's struggling, it's just like, sorry, that sucks. Sorry about your luck. Like, we don't do that. One, because we don't believe in luck. But two, it is, we should be the people who move into that situation. Oh, you're in a hard spot. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll walk with you in that. I'll walk with you in the hard stuff. So disciples of Jesus are called to identify with those in pain. And so my question is, who is in your path that you know right now, this week, that's in pain? And how can you move towards them? Who do you know, and how can you move towards them? Because if you think, well, I have pain too, you probably do, but if that's going to stop you from moving in compassion, then, then you, know, you, need, you need to notice that. Because none of us are going to help each other if we all think we're the only ones that have a thing going on. So who do you know in pain, in your path, that you can move towards and identify with? Number two, Jesus understands suffering, and he walks with us in it. Understand that Jesus, the man of sorrows, knows pain not as an outsider observing it, but as someone who's walked in it. If you think of, his, if, of details of his life story, he's born in poverty. He's born in a little backwards town on the outskirts of Jerusalem. His parents are threatened, and he had to flee to Egypt as a, as a baby to get, to get away from being killed. Um, he grows up and, you know, he, he's got struggle over and over. And as you see, as you follow the trajectory of his life, you see Jesus um, is betrayed by one of his closest friends. He's abandoned by basically all of his closest friends. He's falsely accused uh, by a crowd of people and then eventually tortured and murdered. Um, this is not someone who doesn't understand when things are hard. Jesus is with us in the pain. Hebrews chapter 2 describes it this way, uh, verse 14. Since there, this is talking about um, how God became like us in Jesus. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same thing, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham, people like us. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he may become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. What is the author of Hebrews telling us? That Jesus is God with skin on. 
And because he has that skin and because he walks on our soil and because he has felt betrayal and pain and suffering, uh, he can empathize with us. This is not the Greek gods who do not mess with the affairs of mortal men who are way out there and we're way down here and there's this big gap between and they don't get into our stuff. This is God on earth walking with us and knowing what that's like and knowing what that all feels like. And it, it's easy to believe that, I suppose, when we're not in pain. But when you're in pain, it's hard to believe that God cares. When you lose a child, it, you, you start doubting that God is there at all. When your spouse betrays you, you start doubting that God's fair to you at all. When you see the abuses in the foster care system and and you see what's happening to kids, you will definitely believe in evil, but you're going to have a hard time believing in good. When the, the, the pain gets real and present in our lives, our doubts get very loud. And that's totally understandable. Um, that, but we need to recognize that Jesus actually is in that with us. Eli Wiesel is a guy who uh, wrote a book called Night, and he was a survivor of the Holocaust, lived in a concentration camp, and lived to tell about it and write about it. And um, he, he, in his book Night, he sort of talks about what we might call the dark night of the soul or, or, or his experience going through darkness. And he was looking for ways to believe in God in spite of the circumstances of the concentration camp. Um, and he tells a story about um, three people that were hanged in, in, in camp for being traitors or whatever. And he tells this story, and I, it's, I, I want you to hear it. It's, Rachel, we're putting this together. She goes, you, that's a really sad quote you put on there. I'm like, yeah, it's, it is, warning. But it, it there, there's something profound here. Uh, this is his experience watching this uh, public hanging in the, in the camp. Where is the merciful God? Where is he? Someone behind me was asking. At the signal, the three chairs tipped over. Total silence in the camp. On the horizon, the sun was setting. Caps off, screamed the lager, lager teste. It's German. I don't know. His voice quivered. As for the rest of us, we were weeping. Cover your heads. Then came the march past the victims. The two men were no longer alive. Their tongues were hanging out, swollen and bluish. But the third rope was still moving. The child, too light, was still breathing. And so he remained for more than half an hour, lingering between life and death, writhing before our eyes. And we were forced to look at him at close range. He was still alive when I passed him. Behind me, I heard the same man asking, For God's sake, where is God? And from within me, I heard a voice answer, where he is, this is where, hanging from this gallows. When I read that story and look at it through the resurrection eyes, I see Christ on the cross. Where is God when the world is dark? He's actually in it. He's right there in in the pain, Not, not watching from a distance, um, he's, he is right there with us when the world is dark and, and things look hopeless. It doesn't always feel that way. The dark night of the soul is a dark night of the soul for a reason. And it's easy to feel like when we're in pain, it's easy to feel like no one hears our prayers. And it's easy to feel like there is no hope. And what I want to remind you of is that there is a God sees you 
and knows you, and there's a God that can empathize with you. You see, Jesus actually conquers death and defeats it, and we see it here in this encounter of the pain and the suffering and the death, and Jesus can speak to it and overcome it. And so, what does that mean for us who are all going to face death at some point? Now, I know most things are not death, right? Most of the struggles, the frustrations, the pain we have are not death. Death is the final enemy, but it's not the only enemy. And um, it, it, in some of the day-to-day pain and struggles, and uh, that's the stuff that can really set us back. And some things to us might feel worse than death. Um, I, you know, you sort of think, oh, death is the worst. And it's like, I've had people tell me, um, watching your dad have Alzheimer's and doesn't know who you are for 20 years. I've had people say, I'd prefer that he was gone. It's, it's so painful. Um, being betrayed by somebody you love is so painful. There are things that, I don't know, it's not, it's not a competition, it's worse than death. I don't know, but there are things that are horrible and incredible pain and so I want to ask this question if if Jesus can handle death do you believe he can handle what you're going through if Jesus can handle death if if the final enemy if he looks at that and is like I can speak that out of existence can Jesus handle the thing that you're going through right now because you might say I'm okay with death I'm ready one day I'm, I'll, I'm ready, I, I'm, I've got myself right with God, but are you okay with life and what's happening today? Do you believe, you may believe by faith that he will handle you in death, but do you believe by faith that he's going to handle you today? Can God handle your financial struggles? Because they're real and painful. Can God handle your dating life, which isn't working out the way you wish it would and you wish you would send the right person and all, can God handle that? Can God handle your marriage struggles? You go, man, she won't listen. He's stubborn. And like, can God handle that stuff? Does he see that? Does he know? Does he care? Is he fair? Is he, can, he, can God work in any of those situations? Can God handle your wayward daughter and you wish she would change and you wish it would be like this and it's not working out that way? Can God handle those things? Can God handle your mental health and your anxiety and that pain? Jesus taught us in his prayer, he says, give us this day our daily bread. And, and I think what he's getting at is that um, we have to have enough for today and we need to get through today. And so uh, our trust in Jesus is good for today. Do I believe in trust in Jesus? Today I do. Ask me tomorrow. Because <laughs> we'll see what tomorrow looks like. And there's a reason it's daily bread. We have to keep going back and trust him a little bit each day. This is why I challenge you all the time from up here. I say, guys, we have to read the scripture a little bit each day and pray. It's not complicated. It's not a big deal. Do those things every day because it only takes a couple hours of cynicism in the world to mock me and, and, and get me thinking that God isn't there and doesn't care. And I have to go back to that well every morning and draw a little bit of water. I'm going to read a little bit. And I'm going to pray and be reminded that I need to trust him because our identities are under assault. Our way of life is under assault. Um, 
your status as a child of God is going to be mocked, and so you have to daily refresh and go back to Jesus. I actually don't have anything else to give you. Um, This is not a TED Talk. I don't have the latest, greatest insight from neuroscience that you, you didn't know and is going to like revolutionize. This is not, um, you know, the self-help in section of Barnes and Noble's greatest hits. What I have is Jesus. That, that's, that's what I've got. Jesus is all I've got for you. I'm not going to save you. I'm a Bible teacher. That's it. I can't fix your marriage. I can't make your kids stop doing that thing that they're doing. I cannot bring down systemic racism and make the system stop. I can't even make your uncle stop forwarding those stupid things to you. I cannot, I cannot do any of that. I can just point you to Jesus and say he is the hope of the world. The church isn't the hope of the world. Your, your friend is not the hope of the world. Jesus is the hope of the world. And so I want to challenge you to put your dependency on him today. To trust him today to handle death and everything else. If you've not been baptized into Christ, get baptized today. Give your life to him. Get immersed in water. Say, I'm going to follow you as the leader, the savior of my life. Do that today. Why? Because today is all we have. We don't know how long we have. Life is sometimes tragically short. I tried to figure out how long I have. There's a website for that. Um, deathclock.com you can put in your date of birth and you put in like your BMI or something like that, a health related thing I don't know, health, whatever um, I'm, it says I'm going to die on January 12th 2050 good to know um, it's, a little, it's a little depressing because I hate January and I wish this is maybe one more reason to hate it um, uh, here's what I know. I'm not going to die on January 12, 2050. That's probably not going to happen. Could be next week, could be a month, could be 10 years from now, 40 years from now. I, I, I don't know. So I want to live for God today. I want to know him today. I want you to know him today because this is, this is what we have. Follow him and trust the one who overcomes death. This is the way. Now, if you trust him and you say, I'm going to follow Jesus, here's what might happen. You're going to follow him. You're going to like, you know, I'm in, I'm in. And this week, you're going to get real serious about that. And you might read, you might pray, you might go to a Bible study, you might worship him. And sometime in the next week, you're going to get disappointed. And it's, and it's not going to work. You thought it was a magic lamp that you rub and then the genie comes out and gives you the wishes and that's not going to happen. You're going to get disappointed. Um... We'll talk about that next week because you're not the first one that's felt that way. We'll talk about the disappointment that comes next week. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for being the one who overcomes death, the, the final enemy, the thing that we all have to come face to face with. And I thank you for defeating that and giving us hope and peace. God, a lot of us maybe are not feeling peaceful right now. We're not feeling the joy. Um, But God, help us to lock into what is true and what is right. Jesus, you are our only hope. You conquer death. You give us life. Um, May that be very real in us. This is the way, Lord, that we need to walk. Thank you, God, for this community, for people who show up 
and serve and want to be here and want to learn and want to grow. Uh, may we lean on each other and, and as a group lean on you and depend on you for life. Uh, thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.